Matt here, and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 119, entitled Deus Ex Machina. Uh, first, quickly though, a quick moment of listener feedback. Uh, I've mentioned Dan Mulderlock before. He was uh, kind enough uh, recently to uh, write the following on iTunes. He said, this is an excellent podcast. Matt has a great voice and doesn't pull any punches, especially when it comes to Jack. Very high production value, comes out on a frequent schedule, and Matt has yet another way of looking at Lost that gets me thinking about things from yet another angle. Awesome stuff. Certainly huge thanks to Dan uh, for, for leaving that, uh, that, that wonderful, wonderful review. Um, I must say I'm, I'm touched to read it and touched to have, uh, to have, have that said uh, about me on iTunes. Um, Certainly, uh, I mean, the high production value, it's, uh, I mean, I'm a rather low-tech operation, I assure you, but uh, I try and get the most out of what I have. And uh, as for the frequent schedule, that's, if there's one thing I strive to do, it's to make sure that that podcast is coming out every week. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, I I, I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts. Uh, In fact, I really started to get into listening to podcasts, uh, as I mentioned in, uh, oh, a couple episodes ago, uh, with uh, Lost Casts. Um, and, uh, you know, I certainly am, am sympathetic to when, uh, life gets in the way. And frankly, I can't imagine what it would be like needing to do a weekly podcast on a schedule, you know, when Lost was coming out on a Wednesday and people are expecting a new episode on a Sunday. Uh, you know, you just set yourself up for when, uh, you know, for when life gets in the way, but I'm lucky in that I'm able to record a couple episodes ahead because these, you know, these episodes of Lost are just out there. So anyway, huge thank you uh, once again, Dan. And uh, moving on to today's Wikipedia summary. Uh, As you may recall, I've put out an all call to anyone who's interested uh, in reading the Wikipedia summaries. And uh, I was very, very pleased to uh, receive one from Lorraine. So here's what she had to say about episode 119, Deus Ex Machina. In flashbacks, a younger Locke meets a mysterious woman in a discount superstore in which he works. After an initial meeting, Locke later notices the same woman watching him in the store's parking lot. He chases after her to confront her, and she explains that she is his birth mother, Emily Locke. Locke explains about his father, and Emily claims that Locke, that Locke does not have a father because he was immaculately conceived. Undeterred, Locke hires a private investigator who finds Locke's father, Anthony Cooper. When Locke visits his father's affluent home, he is welcomed with open arms. Locke forms a strong relationship with his father, who now frequently takes him hunting. One day, Locke arrives at the home early and discovers his father receiving dialysis. Eventually, Locke offers one of his kidneys to save his father. 
After the surgery, however, Locke wakes up in the hospital to find that his father has discharged himself home for private care and abandoned him. Emily arrives to explain that when Anthony realized he needed the kidney, he tracked down their son and paid her to contact with him, presumably for the sole purpose of getting the transplant. Devastated, Locke pulls himself out of the hospital bed and drives to his father's home, but is regretfully turned away by the gate guard with whom he has become friendly. As he drives away, Locke breaks down over the betrayal. On the island, Locke and Boone build a trebuchet in an effort to break open the hatch window. When this fails, an exasperated Locke pounds the hatch. Boone notices a shard in Locke's leg, but Locke f- says he feels no pain, and that night he discovers he's losing the feeling in his legs. Meanwhile, Sawyer is suffering from headaches, and Jack realizes that he is farsighted and requires glasses, as he's been reading a lot since arriving on the island. With Saeed, he used some of the spare glasses from the wreckage to separate and rejoin a pair of plastic glasses at the bridge with a heated knife for Sawyer to read with. That night in a dream, Locke tells Boone that the island will send him a sign at which point he notices a Beechcraft airplane crashed in the jungle. The dream also reveals a secret about Boone. Awaking early the next day, Locke and Boone head out in search of uh, the aircraft. When Boone doubts him, Locke mentions the secret he learned from his dream, leading Boone to follow Locke on the hunt. They encounter a decayed body in, the Catholic spree- in a Catholic priest's clothing but carrying a gun. After some searching, they discover the plane itself unsteadily lodged in the, in the jungle tree canopy high above. Locke has lost use of his legs and asked Boone to climb up to check the plane. When in the plane, Boone discovers a trove of statues of the Virgin Mary filled with heroin, the body of another priest, and a working radio. Boone sends out a distress call on the radio and a male voice answers. Is someone there? To which Boone responds, We are the survivors of Oceanic Flight 815. He barely hears a reply. We are the survivors of Oceanic 518. At this point, the teetering plane shifts from Boone's movement and suddenly falls to the earth, crashing nose first. Frantically, Locke struggles to his feet, hoists a critically injured Boone on his shoulders, and returns to the camp. Locke carries Boone to the cave and lies to Jack, telling him that Boone fell from a cliff while they were hunting. Jack begins treating Boone, and Locke disappears into the jungle to return to the hatch. Pounding on the door and screaming in anguish atop the hatch, Locke laments what has happened, and then suddenly the hatch window is illuminated. And once again, uh, a huge thank you to Lorraine for uh, reading that and sending it in. If uh, any other listeners are interested in reading an episode summary, you can send an email to me at lookingbackatlost at gmail.com, and I'll tell you what episode I'm working on. And uh, I'll, uh, what, what I'll probably do, too, is send you kind of a, a pared-down version of the Wikipedia summary. Uh, there's times that it's a bit wordy or it kind of is going out of its way to give you the full name of characters, you know, uh, Hugo Hurley Reyes, this kind of thing. So uh, I certainly... Uh, welcome uh, future listeners uh, uh, for reading the Wikipedia summaries. But with the summary behind us, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. Uh, this episode starts in flashback. Uh, I wonder if perhaps they've, uh, they're not trying to overly push the, the eye opening to start an episode. Um, but 
the start of this episode too is the first time that we learn to start to play the game called Follow John Locke's Hair. You can kind of uh, ask yourself, where are we in Locke's chronology, depending on uh, where his hairline is up to. So stay tuned for future, uh, future Locke flashbacks where, uh, where we can play Follow John Locke's Hair. Um, anyhow, this is another opening to an episode where I just couldn't take the notes without pausing. Locke is showing the boy how to build the pieces in the game Mousetrap. And to me, that's clearly meant to be some sort of ominous clue for the people at home. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, Locke's own obsession with uh, with uh, building some sort of mechanism to open in uh, to open the hatch uh, to the detriment of his fellow player Boone, or or whether it's just a general comment towards uh, danger on the island, which we're about to learn a very very tough lesson about um, at the end of this episode. Uh, and I suppose even more so with uh, next week's episode because we don't quite seriously take uh, Boone's injury until uh, well until the end of next week, but we'll save that for next week. Um, anyhow, when the story switches to the island, there's a fairly close shot of the hatch. It's the part that we've seen so far. When the shot widens and we see how much has been dug out, Giacchino's music seems dark and lurking. Uh, and it's as though the size of the hatch amazes him too. And I know I remember from the first time I saw the episode, you kind of had this image of, you know, for, first it's this kind of, you know, plunk of metal, and then it's this kind of, you know, sheet of metal. And you say, all right, well, you, you know, whatever. But then it, it kind of reaches a point where you say, like, wow, this is a big thing. This is a big deal. What is down there? What What is this that's going on? Um, it's an effective, slow rollout of the hatch. Um <laughs> I was going to say to their credit, but I mean, clearly lost, um, did nothing if not perfected this notion of a slow rollout, you know, what could be in the hatch. It takes us, oh, what, it, it takes us two or three episodes into season two to get past the past five minutes or so uh, from the end of season one, if that makes sense, because we're kind of doing flashbacks and seeing things from multiple points of view and all that jazz. But anyhow, back to this episode, I'm kind of overly waxing eloquent here, um, in this episode, we also get to see two or three different sides of Locke. And heck, not just in this episode, in that scene where you first see the, the, the hatch newly dug out. To Boone, he's the Zen master yet again. He's talking about trebuchets. Uh, Boone balks that Locke never shares anything about himself. And Locke says that he isn't interesting. Uh, and with that, I believe Boone turns away or his back is to Locke or whatever. But the camera shows the look on Locke's face to be sad, empty, pathetic and reflective of old pains then of course when the trebuchet fails to break the hatch glass we see angry uh, mean unhinged lock the one who uh, in walkabout was ranting and raving while paralyzed and on the phone with phone uh, phone sex helen um it's i mean it's just fantastic i mean this is a lock episode you are seeing lock in all these different ways um and then of course there's that little bit uh, that that scene ends with, uh, with Locke having a huge piece of metal in his leg, which he can't feel. And of course, this episode will later have him experiencing a further lack of feeling and uh, continued paralysis. Why, I ask? And it's something that I'll, I'll ponder about uh, during the course of the podcast. And then I, I, unless some lightning strikes my brain, I'll be pondering out uh, pondering about uh, at the end of the episode because I don't know why Locke has this touch of 
um, uh, of uh, lack of feeling touch, and then touch of paralysis. I wondered if perhaps it was from the electromagnetism of the hatch, um, although he does move away from that. Now, is there some sort of latent um, you know, uh, soaking up of the electromagnetic waves, perhaps? Or is it a very cleverly hidden cheap writer's trick? And, uh, you know, there certainly are times where I take the show to task on acting cheaply. Watching this episode, I was not struck by them coming up with some sort of gimmick so that uh, Locke is incapacitated, some sort of gimmick so that Boone must do more physically, some sort of gimmick so that Boone must be the one up in the plane and not Locke, who I think would would logically be the one had he been able to walk. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like a gimmick, but... You know, again, I don't, I don't go crazy researching every little aspect of every little episode. I, I don't mean this podcast to be the definitive uh, post-lost rewatch podcast, but you know, I do check things out on Lostpedia, and I have, um, you know, lovingly and caringly watched every single episode of the series. For the life of me, I don't know why why Locke is this way. But anyhow, we we will we'll discuss this more at the end. Um, the to, to kind of to go back to the flashback uh, portion, the casting of Swoozy Kurtz as Locke's mother is odd. I think all they do to age Locke back is to put a wig on him. He still, in my mind, he still looks like he's his age. I don't mean to be kind of you know have any ageism here. To me, he looks like he's in his you know mid to late fifties, perhaps. Um, Swoozy Kurtz looks like she's in her mid 60s um you know they don't they don't do anything to lock in terms of you know the old kind of hollywood trick of you know stick a little uh stick a little tape right by the uh, eyebrow and pull your face back so the wrinkles are gone or any of this it's just kind of it looks like john Locke in a wig talking to somebody who isn't old enough to be his mother. Now, you might be sitting here saying, well, if he's mid-50s and she's late-60s, she could have been a very young mother, et cetera, et cetera. It just looks like the two of them should be, I don't know, seeing each other at ShopRite and talking about the latest goings-on in town or something, you know, something like that. It doesn't look like a mother-son age difference to me. Um, similarly, it's, it's odd writing uh, at times, to end a flashback scene, Locke is told he was immaculately conceived. We don't believe it. Locke doesn't believe it. Uh, but it ends the scene, but it's an unbelievable way to end the scene. Now, I suppose, too, it is also a way to quickly tell us, ah, you know, the mother returns and this, you know, we're going to have some interesting flashback here about the, the orphan Locke sort of thing. But, I mean, it's a clue right on that that, that she's uh, crazy. Um, so maybe that's their intention, to just say, oh, all is nice, mom has returned, and she's nuts. Perhaps. But to me, it's just, you know, you end lost acts with, uh, with you know, I don't know any of you, or, you know, guys, what is this? Or, guys, where are we? You know, who, th- this sort of thing. You don't kind of end with, you know, and I'm crazy. Um, anyhow, enough, uh, silliness on my part. Um, and on to some more of the silliness of the show. Um, indeed you'll hear in this clip how the show is starting to become self-referential. What's he think? He says he's fine, but then I, he's fine. Yeah, well, he could be playing it down. There could Look, be something. Kate, 
I'd love nothing more than to check the guy out and make sure he's okay. But we both know all I'm going to get from my trouble is a snappy one-liner. And if I'm real lucky, a brand new nickname. I'm just over it. It's just wonderful, kind of, you know, there's this little meta moment where, you know, we're all kind of amused by Sawyer's nicknames, and here Jack is uh, mildly, mildly, mildly amused by them, uh, I suppose, when they're directed towards other people, but not him. Um, that said, the, the show goes from funny to what was, in my mind, a genuinely, genuinely scary moment, which was uh, Locke's um, hallucination, I suppose we could call it. Boom! And of course, right at the end there is when uh, is when he wakes up and it's all been a dream. Um, my question, though, is what caused this? Why does Locke see the drug plane, see Bloody Boone, see his mother in the jungle? Is this all coincidence? Is it his mind putting things together? Perhaps some signs of the plane that he hasn't consciously processed, uh, along with concern about Boone blindly following him. You know, kind of one of these, uh, you know, subconscious uh, things that your your, your your dream mind works out. I don't know. Although I would have, I would suggest one possible answer. And it might be very difficult to hear. I'll, I'll try and turn the sound up. We'll pick up that clip right from where Locke uh Right from when Locke woke up. Listen carefully. It's coming up right here. Well, I suspect that probably wasn't uh, as audible as I had hoped. But towards the end of the clip there, there's either the sound of just kind of bugs in the background or, you know, kind of cicadas or uh, the the sound of the smoke monster, kind of that type sound. I'm sure you appreciate my uh, home effects here, home sound effects. Um, so is it the smoke monster? Has some sort of brain scan, the likes that we've seen done to other characters, uh, such as Echo comes to mind. Uh, has some sort of brain scan been performed on him, having him mix together thoughts and memories and emotions? I'm not saying that I hang my hat on that theory at all. Um, it just, I mean, to me, there's a lot of business in this episode that's uh, in the supernatural realm. Locke's paralysis, his visions, etc. Where is this coming from is my question. Uh, I'm, I'm proposing that as an answer, even though I, I don't necessarily uh, love it. Um, moving on, uh, talking about the flashbacks again. It's a great uh, bit of casting on the part of the detective that Locke hires to find out info on mom and dad. This guy kind of looks a bit rough around the edges, but not to the point that he's a detective stereotype. He looks like the kind of guy who's good at snooping around, but also has spent too many years kind of, you know, looking through trash cans and taking uh, incriminating pictures and that sort of thing. Continuing on in the casting department, it is fantastic casting on the part of Anthony Cooper a.k.a., as we'll learn later on, the real Mr. Sawyer. I just absolutely love this guy's voice. I think if he was born in a different era, he would have been a huge uh, radio star. Uh, 
or perhaps if he was born in a different era, he'd be a huge podcasting star. Who knows? But take a listen to this guy's voice. Well, this is awkward. Thank you for seeing me, sir. Something tells me I'm going to want a drink for this. You want a drink? Uh, yeah. All right. Great. Scotch, okay? Yeah, that's. Thanks. Isn't that just how people are supposed to have talked, you know, back in the day, back in oldie time movies and stuff like that? It's just, uh, what a, he's such a joy to see, even though he's uh, an increasingly despicable character as his appearances in the show increase. Um, of course, I have to take a moment and give a little uh, praise here to Terry O'Quinn. He's just so wonderfully subtle in this episode. When he's in that scene with his dad, he looks like a kid on Christmas as his father welcomes him into the house, gives him scotch, invites him to hunt. I mean, you, Terry O'Quinn is portraying adult Locke feeling the emotions of a child. Here I finally get to meet dad. Here's daddy. You know, maybe we can make a kite or go, you know, build a model airplane. It's kind of, there's that glint in his eye and it's just absolutely wonderful. At any rate, regardless of whatever forces are guiding Locke, uh, he, of course, does bring Boone along. And that, of course, is the first step towards Boone, Boone's end. And, uh, well, take a listen to this clip. Because, John, I got to tell you, signs and dreams and... Who's Teresa? What? Teresa falls up the stairs. Teresa falls down the stairs. You were saying that in the dream. How do you know about that? I don't know, Moon, but we're supposed to go to this place. We're supposed to find that plane. Will you come with me? Will you come with me? It's like being asked to join Jesus to be a fisher of men. But Locke is soon to be shown as a false prophet. Uh, obviously, at least insofar as uh, as Boone is uh, as Boone is concerned. Um, on their journey, of course, they come across, uh, well, I suppose this fits well, going from uh, Fishers of Men to, uh, they discover a pre, uh, the, the body of the priest, uh, complete, of course, with a centipede coming out of his eye socket. He was a priest. How long do you think he's been dead? Normally, clothing would completely decompose within two years, but this is high-quality polyester. Could be two years, could be ten. Gold teeth, obviously well off. What kind of money is that? Nigerian Naira. What is a Nigerian priest doing in an island in the South Pacific? I'm not so sure he's a priest. It's a rather convenient way to end that clip with the uh, cocking of a gun, but ah, the mysteries of the priest. A Nigerian priest who may not be a priest, who's well off. Of course, the question is, how did the propeller plane reached the South Pacific from, apparently, Nigeria. Looking back, of course, let's, let's review all that we know. It's Echo's brother. He is indeed not a priest, but rather uh, a very, very bad man. Uh, and the plane, we can assume, although it's not ever explicitly said, but we can assume that the plane reached the island when the island was closer to Africa, because, of course, we now know that the island moves. Um, and... It obviously has since moved, as it does from time to time, to its present location. Hence, uh, the Nigerian priest, not from uh, 
not not a priest and not uh, from an easy distance uh, from Nigeria to where the, the, the island is at, explained. Um, and it's, it's splendid, too, that Locke admits to Boone that he was in a wheelchair. He says that the reason why doesn't matter. Uh, meanwhile, the flashback story, of course, uh, in this episode is about Locke's father, who we'll learn in a few years was the reason how fitting it is. It's just wonderfully fitting that Locke dismisses the reason aloud for the first time in an episode with the villain for that particular crime in the episode, which is to say, of course, he doesn't want to talk about why he's in a wheelchair, but we are seeing the reason why, which is his father. Um, and, you know, it's ironic too, and it's probably intentionally ironic, uh, that Locke calls Boone's son, and then in the next scene, Cooper calls Locke's son. Both sons, quote-unquote, uh, have the same fate, being led down the wrong path by an imperfect father. Uh, I, I think that this just absolutely has to be intentional. The dialogue is clearly there on purpose. The edit places both utterances of son almost back-to-back. Um, but it's just a really, really nice touch. And, you know, frankly, if you're seeing this episode for the first time, well, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Uh, you know, at the end, they all die and go to heaven. But, I mean, it, it, to be serious, um, it's so clearly foreshadowed in the episode that Boone is in trouble. Once we see that, you know, Locke has been put in trouble from his, uh, you know, from his father. And we have this this linking of the notion of kind of father and son uh, business. But anyhow, off this heady uh, material for a moment to just have a quick discussion about Sawyer's glasses. It is a delightful little B story. One that certainly, certainly belies the awful fate awaiting Boone. Um, and I mean, of course, you can't help but rewatch this episode without just naturally thinking about Boone's death in the next episode. Uh, in so many ways, I think that it was the first time that the show really broke our hearts. I mean, you, particularly with uh, with Charlie having uh, come back from death, uh, it, you know, all those episodes, you know, a number of episodes ago, you kind of don't buy that Boone is going to die in the next episode. You don't quite buy the, the, the gravitas the first time you see it. But you watch this episode and it's just like, it's heartbreaking because you know he's going towards this this fate of death. Um, at any rate, Sawyer's glasses give the show an uppy little montage with bouncing music, truly funny results. You know, his glasses are half Clark Kent glasses and half old lady glasses. Um, as well as, and, and they don't kind of explicitly come out and say it, but it's a quiet answer as to why Sawyer missed shooting the Marshal's heart. He's having these vision problems, right? Um, but moving on, when Boone enters the plane, I mean, as I was just saying, it really is difficult and sad to watch. You're seeing him in his final moments as a viable character. Uh, you're seeing him moving closer and closer towards his devastating injury. Uh, and, and it's, it's just sad. It really is. Um, particularly, you know, all those times that he was a good sport and, and would come back for a little snippet of, uh, you know, being somebody's vision here or showing up in somebody else's flashback there or uh you know of course uh, showing up again in uh in, in season six it's um it's it, it's a tough part of the episode to watch because you know where it's headed it's almost a better episode on the rewatch uh for that very reason but um as a side note when boone smashes the virgin mary's filled with heroin 
uh, the shot lingers just long enough for us to recognize that stuff from Charlie's drug experiences. And that we just kind of know it's, it's of all the different things that we're keeping track of. There's new bait for Charlie. That newly clean Charlie is, is now in trouble. Um, even though we are moving closer to Boone's death, though, at this point, there's one of the great, great, great Easter eggs of the entire show in this clip. Hello? Hello? Anybody out there? Mayday, mayday! Boone, there's no time! Get out now! Is someone there? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Repeat your transmission, please. Hello? We're survivors of the crash of Oceanic Ooh, Flight 815. Please copy. Oh, no. Get out! Get out! Get out! Oceanic Flight 815. That was just one of these things. I remember watching this episode for the first time when it aired, and like... Uh, I mean, I don't know if I had recorded it or you know whatever, whatever, but just kind of like running it back and saying, "What did what 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 did the person on the other end just say?" It sounded like they said they're from Oceanic Eight One Five as well, and you know, putting on the closed captioning and kind of this whole like, "Oh my goodness, what in the world is going on?" Um, and of course, to think that we're going to hear the other side of that conversation in season two with beloved characters. I mean, Anna Lucia is is um, obviously greatly flawed, but also. Uh, one of my favorite characters. Echo is fantastic for his run, and shame on the actor for leaving, wanting to leave the show, choosing to leave the show. Bernard, I mean, what, what can you say? I mean, Bernard is, you know, just one of the great, uh, one of the great supporting characters in the show, and it's all, it's all right there. It's all just kind of planted there. Uh, and of course, the end of the clip has the plane falling, and I mean, it's, it's a good. It's a good bunch of kind of crunching, thudding, uh, uh, well, falling. But uh, I think the first-time viewers wouldn't fully assume that Boone is going to be tremendously, gravely injured. But when when you first see him as Locke is kind of pulling stuff out and Boone just kind of suddenly appears there, having been behind some you know bits and pieces of rubbish, and he's just laying there, all that blood on him suggests that this is a new level of seriousness. Um, and as we kind of head towards the final act of the show, there's a wonderful change of pace um, that just kind of really snaps us into this final act. Jack and Kate are talking about Sawyer's glasses and they're flirting lightly and I didn't do it for Sawyer, I did it for you. And it's this kind of, you know, little thing that's quickly broken up by Locke screaming for help. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, just kind of um, at that point we're being pulled toward the end of the episode and pulled towards next week's episode but the architecture of this episode is so wonderful you see Locke's failure with Boone is echoed you, you know you see how it's echoed by Locke's failures with his father thus Boone's injury is followed in the flashback by Locke realizing he's been screwed out of a kidney by his father um I wonder how early on the producers planned for Cooper to be the real Mr. Sawyer. I certainly don't remember having predicted that um, myself. And, I, and at this point in season one, I probably wasn't super keyed into um, the theory law, you know, the kind of the, the theory oriented lost community. But 
you rewatch this episode knowing that Anthony Cooper is a con man, it is clearly such a long con from the very, very beginning to the very, very end, slowly drawing him in. Then the, oops-a-daisy, I'm getting dialysis. You're supposed to come at noon. And Locke says, oh, uh, you told me 11. Oh, you know, da-da-da. It's, it's, you know, we will see Sawyer pull other cons like this where you, oh, and we already have, quite frankly, in, in the first Sawyer flashback where the notion of the con is to make the mark decide to give you x not you con them out of it not you say you know oh i need 50 bucks to do such and such it's you make them decide to give you five hundred dollars five thousand dollars whatever it might be um it's it's uh it's just kind of wonderful how how out in the open it is that that anthony cooper is running a con he's always been good that way your father's always been generous you told me I didn't have a father. Well, he said that was the only way you would give it to him. It had to be your idea. He told me where to find you. He, he asked me to go see you. I wanted to see you. This can't be happening. This, this is a misunderstanding. This, this can't happen to me. You wouldn't do this to me. <sighs> he w- wouldn't do this to me. We're seeing here the birth of that angry, broken down, brittle lock that we met in Walkabout. Uh, and indeed, the end of this hospital scene, and then. Uh, Locke yelling at Cooper through the gate. It's the same music that was uh, at the end of Walkabout. You're watching me. You can't do this. John, please, move your car. There's an anger and a determination on his face before he leaves, before his emotional breakdown. He's out for revenge, but further, this breakdown scene is so wonderfully shot. Sure, they're in a small Volkswagen, but the choice to shoot him from behind is just inspired. This is the Zen master, this is the father figure. To see him fall, enraged uh, to pieces is scary, as we viewers are probably not inclined to be too close to him. And then, of course, just as Walkabout ended with a note of tragedy, turning to hope uh, with the same music. I've done everything you wanted me to do, so why did you do this to me? We're seeing the battered and broken uh, lock on the island. And then, of course, it leads to this crescendo where the light on the hatch turns on, and it's golden and special and elegant. However, it quickly turns creepy as hell, and not just because Giacchino's music says so, it's creepy because someone, something unknown is down there. And that's how the episode ends. That said, I'm still unsure exactly what Locke's vision was supposed to be. The, the plane of Locke's vision is yellow and white, just like the actual Beechcraft. Uh, and of course, Boone and T indeed does become wounded. Um, in reflecting, this episode has made me consider if perhaps I've been too rough on Locke. 
Uh, sure, he's responsible for Boone's death, and perhaps that's where uh, a lot of us hang our hang our blame on him. But he was indeed right about the hatch uh, when he said that it was their destiny. Could there have been life for these castaways without Desmond, who of course is in that hatch? The freighter people would have come, and there would have been no warning of not Penny's boat. There would have been no rescue of the Oceanic Six. There would have been no Desmond to help everyone come together in the flash sideways. The island may have demanded the sacrifice of Boone, and Locke may uh, indeed have been that John the Baptist, calling everyone toward the Savior that, that was Desmond. So, Desmond as Christ, is that too much? Um, perhaps, I don't know. Certainly, uh, it's something I'll, be, uh, something I'll be following up on uh, as, as Desmond enters the show in season two. Um, certainly thinking of long-haired, bearded Desmond, uh, I think it's uh, not, uh, not a crazy uh, notion to consider. But um, anyhow, with that, uh, my uh, thoughts about this episode end, but of course the podcast does not. Um, I had put out a quick question to people on Twitter, where of course I'm looking back lost. Um, and I had said... What do you guys think is the uh, the cause of uh, Locke's vision and his paralysis and all that? And Oz Lost said, MIB did it. Boone dies. Shannon hooks up with Saeed. Shannon dies. Saeed slowly, slowly loses his soul. One less candidate. Um, certainly an interesting theory. I'm not, uh, well, it's just kind of, it's certainly something to, uh, to mull over. Um, Moving on, let's mull over uh, some various information from Lostpedia about this episode, any bits and pieces that I might have missed. Um, Lostpedia says the events in this episode are revisited from other perspectives in The Other 48 Days, Live Together, Die Alone Part 2, and The Little Prince. So that's <laughs> it's rather impressive that we're going to see events in this episode three more times. Um, a little smaller bit of trivia is that the nurse who checked up on Locke after his operation is the same one who speaks to Jack in Man of Science, Man of Faith. A bit more monumentally, this is the first episode co-written by executive producers Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. Um, the voice heard on the radio transmission that Boone picks up, which is revealed uh, in season two to have been Bernard, is not that of actor Sam Anderson. Uh, this is most likely because the part had not yet been cast. I think that's a bit of an understatement on Lostpedia's part. Of course they have not cast uh, the Bernard part, who I think shows up maybe around episode oh, maybe six or seven, uh, or even past that. Um, of course, they haven't cast him at this point. Um, Bostpedia also goes on to say that this episode marks the first appearance of Kevin Ty playing Anthony Cooper. Additionally, the decomposed corpses of Yemi and Goldie appear for the first time in this episode. Uh, those are the two dead guys in the Nigerian plane. Um, and then it goes on to have a bit of a discussion about Deus Ex Machina, which, uh, as a side note, I distinctly remember, uh, well, how mispronounced that was. Luckily, uh, I was aware of Deus Ex Machina before the episode came out, before others podcasted about it and mispronounces Deus Ex Machina and all that. But anyhow, here's what Lostpedia has to say about Deus Ex Machina kind of as a device. The title of this episode refers to a theatrical device which originated in ancient Greek theater. This device consisted of a physical crane that lowered a character down onto the stage, the character representing a god. This god would help the characters with a sudden twist in plot. 
This term would come to mean any device within a plot that provided a sudden change or solution in plot. Deus Ex Machina literally translates into God from the machine in Latin. In script writing, the term Deus Ex Machina is often used to refer to a solution in a story, uh, a means to an end that comes out of nowhere and has nothing to do with the story, sometimes leaving the audience feel cheated. I know in one Shakespearean example, maybe it's Henry V, an example of Deus Ex Machina is there's a battle, and then, or maybe it's Chaucer, I don't remember, but there's a battle, um, and the bad guys are about to win, and then there's an earthquake that swallows up the the bad guy general, and therefore it's all over. It's just kind of like it's not a logical conclusion to this army versus that army. Anyhow, Lostpedia goes on to say, within the context of this episode, it is likely that the expression Deus Ex Machina is meant to be taken more literally. There are two gods coming out of machines in this episode. First, the Virgin Mary statues that Boone finds in the Beechcraft, then the blinding beam of light that comes out of the hatch at the end. Uh, thus says La, uh, Lostpedia. I would add to that, if there's a theory, which I will hopefully uh, develop further in future episodes, but if we're going to look at Desmond as a Christ figure, which again, I'm not committing to, I'm just saying there might be a beginning here and if that's the case well here's here's the machina here's the machine the hatch and you know to to whatever degree desmond is a christ figure well here's our here's our deus here's our god in the machine so to speak anyhow from that weighty position let's look ahead next week to the the wonderful and terrible and sad and beautiful episode 120 entitled do no harm the I mean, it's a Jack episode, but it's 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 the Boone episode. It is it is going to be a sad uh, a sad rewatch indeed. Um, but at least you can look forward to future episodes of Looking Back at Lost. New episodes launch to the website, iTunes, and the Lost Podcasting Network on Fridays. If you'd like to give feedback, you can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm Looking Back Lost. You can send an email, uh, feedback at send a text uh, you know a written email or a voice message to looking back at lost at gmail.com you can check out the webpage looking back at lost.podbean.com and of course you can always find the show on itunes where reviews are always appreciated so thank you once again for listening and i will uh, look forward to joining everyone next week for episode 120 do no harm take care bye bye